Welcome to another episode of our podcast, Regulation Matters, A Clear Conversation. I'm your host, Lyne Dempsey. For those that may not know me, I'm the Senior Investigator with the North Carolina State Board of Dental Examiners. I'm on the CLEAR Board of Directors, as well as the current Chair of the National Certified Investigator Training Committee and Vice Chair of the Annual Conference Program Committee with CLEAR. As you may know, Council on Licensure Enforcement and Regulation, or CLEAR, is an association of individuals, agencies, and organizations that comprise the international community of professional and occupational regulation. Our podcast is a chance for you to hear the latest and greatest in our community, and today I'm joined by Douglas Bilton, Assistant Director of Standards and Policy with the Professional Standards Authority in the UK. We're glad to have you with us today. Welcome. Hello, Lyon, and thank you very much. Uh, for inviting me to take part in this conversation. Absolutely, and thank you for joining me. Uh, today's topic um, that we'd like to talk about is the current research interests at the Professional Standards Authority. I guess let me start by asking the first question, why is the authority interested in research? Well, more than anything else, what we're trying to establish is that professional regulation is an evidence-led area of public policy and one where, when we develop and improve, we're informed by the best evidence that we can possibly get hold of. Um, we realized a few years ago now that most, most of the research going on in the sector, in the UK at least, is fragmented. It tended to focus internally on regulated internal processes. What we've been trying to do at the authority is to build better links between the academic world and the world of regulatory practice and to encourage research which really breaks new ground. And that could be research which we commission or undertake ourselves. It could mean research which is undertaken or commissioned by the regulators we oversee, and they could either do that themselves singly or together in some sort of collaboration. Or that could mean bringing research in another field to bear on the current regulatory issues that we're looking at where maybe that wouldn't have happened otherwise. Or alternatively to that, it could just involve getting those, the academics who might not have even thought about professional regulation as an area of study to be interested in it. What we've tried to do is to commission and encourage other people to commission research which really addresses the big questions in regulation like how do we shift the focus so that we're more about preventing professional misconduct rather than reacting after things have gone wrong. And it's been great to see actually how positively and enthusiastically the sector is engaging with this. Well, that's great. Now, you, you mentioned earlier um, that, you know, you're trying to encourage research that would break new ground. Can you give some kind of examples of, of some research that is groundbreaking, if you would? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's one example that comes to mind is the research that we've commissioned from Professor Rosalind Searle at Glasgow University. Um, although she was at Coventry University when she did this piece of work for us. She's doing a bit more, which I'll talk about in a moment, um, in her new role at Glasgow. Professor Searle came to us with the idea to look at the data that we hold at the authority about the regulators' final fitness to practice hearings. These are the nine um, UK health and care regulators that we oversee. The final fitness to practice hearing might be the equivalent in other countries of a, a discipline committee. And what the authority's role is in relation to these hearings is to review the outcome. It's one of our roles, I should say. It's to review the outcome, and we can take action if we think the decision about the, um, if there's a sanction, for example, that's been applied to a, to a registrant, if we think that hasn't protected the public adequately. So say someone was suspended temporarily from the register when we think they should have been removed. 
There are various courses of action we can take. Now, because we do this, we've got a huge database of thousands of cases going back several years. And for each of those cases on our database, we've got what we call a determination. It's a record of how the panel that heard the case reached its decision, it's a summary of the evidence was considered, and various facts and circumstances about the case. Now, Professor Searle has analyzed these as a, as a psychologist, looking at the themes or trends that can be observed in that data, and looking at questions like, are there any discernible behavioral traits that emerge on the parts of registrants who get into trouble? And in doing so, what she was doing was drawing on the whole academic literature around counterproductive work behavior. And the reason that we think this work was, um, was groundbreaking was because we don't think that in asking questions in regulation about why people can go wrong in the workplace, we don't think that that particular whole field of literature has ever been applied before. Now, the report's called Bad Apples, Bad Barrels, or Bad Sellers which pretty much sums up what Professor Searle found, because she looks at cases, one, where individuals have been instrumental in breaching professional standards, which are the bad apples. She also talks about bad barrels, where otherwise well-intentioned individuals have been brought down in the, the, in the standards of their practice, for example, by being part of a dysfunctional team. And finally, bad sellers, which is where problems in the wider system for providing health and care to the public have caused some kind of um, breakdown in the performance at the individual's level. Now, you might ask why we do this as the Professional Standards Authority, which has oversight of the professional regulators in health and care in the UK. Now, I mentioned earlier, one of the things that we are trying to achieve is a shift of the focus of regulation so that it looks forwards and anticipates problems rather than reacting after the fact. When things go wrong, as we all know, it causes harm and it costs time and money. As things are put right, but also the process of referral to regulators, investigating and holding hearings, the costs just mount and mount to everyone involved. And the best way to stop things going wrong is to understand the real reasons and the circumstances which result in these situations occurring in the first place. And this may, I say may, I think I really mean, will inevitably involve digging very deep into issues of social and individual psychology. Well, that, that's very interesting. So with so many people interested in regulatory development around the world, obviously that's something that CLEAR is obviously very heavily involved with. Uh, how do you bring all these things together? Well, as you said, the international organizations such as CLEAR and also organizations like IAMRA are, in, well, are obviously increasingly popular. There are, events are really well attended. And there's a, there's a busy scene internationally of people in regulation and in research who are really keen to learn from each other and to help improve regulatory practice. Uh, there's one basic thing that we do uh, on, to contribute to this discussion at the authority is to publish everything. We've got a policy to publish everything that we, uh, that we do on our website and to try and keep colleagues around the world informed about what we're up to. We also, we've been organizing, I think we're currently arranging our sixth, an annual academic and research conference, which has seen increasing attendance from outside the UK. It's held, in, it's held near London, but we've seen more and more people coming from overseas, which is great. 
Well, our next one again on 7th and 8th of March uh, 2019. Now we work with an academic partner to help us to agree a theme for the conference. We call for presentations to hundreds of people who we know are part of this network. And we put together a program that we hope um, speaks to our theme, which this year is going to be, what is it to be a good regulator? Working with an academic partner from the uh, St. George's Medical School in the University of London, who is Professor Deborah Bowman, and she's a, clinic, she's a professor of bioethics, medical ethics, and clinical law. That event brings together about 100 people, and it's a mix of people working in regulatory bodies and academics and government officials and regulatory lawyers and maybe some management consultants working in the field. And what results has always been a fascinating and rich discussion about current research and ideas for the future. And that's really what we're hoping for, that people go away from the conference thinking with new insights from the research that they've heard about that's already happening, but also thinking about ideas for new possibilities for future work. And finally, there's just one thing to mention, which isn't really about bringing people together, but it's about supporting learning across countries. And maybe we don't make too much of this, and possibly we could do more with it. Um, people may know that for a few years now, the authority has been undertaking commissioned performance reviews of regulators um, outside the UK. So, for example, we've worked with the College of Registered Nurses of British Columbia, and the Royal College of Dental Surgeons of Ontario, and our reports on their performance on our website, as I said. Now, in those reports that we publish, we always include a section which describes regulatory arrangements in that country for health and care professionals more generally. So, uh, why, why do you do that? We find it's a long-standing challenge that if you try and compare different regulatory systems, you quickly run into some difficult territory because of the different legislation and the different powers and the different names for the same thing. And the opposite, which can be even more confusing, is where within that regulatory um, community, a word is used to mean one thing and it means something completely different somewhere else. So, for example, quality assurance has several different meanings depending on where you are in the world when you say it. Now, what we're trying to do with putting those chapters into the report is to build up some plainly worded accounts which try and overcome those linguistic barriers and describe in a really straightforward and plain language how regulation is delivered, what the relevant law is, who the organizations are with responsibility for regulating and that kind of thing. So by doing that, what we're hoping to do is create a set of relatively easy to compare descriptions. Now, at some point, it'd be really helpful to do something more formal, I suppose, I mean, actually more rigorous, with a more rigorous methodology to make sure that when we try and learn from each other, and this, this is what this is all about, we're really comparing like with like. So for when people meet at a conference and they talk about the different things that they do, there's a way more formally to take those examples and say, well, yeah, you do this here and it works really well and people are really interested in it, but if we try and lift it up and transplant it somewhere else, Will it work equally well there? Or what might need to be done to prepare the ground to make something work equally well somewhere else? Gotcha. Well, I guess going back to your, your, your data and, and research, when, when your authority, when the authority is, is looking about commissioning research, um, how do you decide what gets taken forward? Well, we get ideas from all sorts of sources, actually. I mean, the work that I was talking about earlier by Rosalind Searle was 
situation there was that she came to us with an idea saying that she'd really like to look into this. And so we then think about, well, what do we think of that? Do, you think, do we think it will be useful contribution to the evidence base? Do we think it will contribute to patient safety? And of course, finally, do we have the budget available to fund it? Now, there's another source of um, another source of recommendations for the research that we take forward is reports and investigations. So there's a recent example of this, which is the rapid policy review that's been carried out by Sir Norman Williams into gross negligence manslaughter in healthcare, which was published in June 2018, and that made a number of recommendations specifically for work by the authority. Now, one of those was actually very opportune because it's something that's been an issue of concern to us for a while now, which is to look across different professions and look at the consistency of the outcome of fitness to practice procedures. So just to reiterate, that's our equivalent of complaints, investigations, and discipline. Because it's often said that the outcomes are not consistent in that for some professions, they appear to receive a more or less harsh or more or less lenient treatment than others through the processes of the different regulators. But it's not as straightforward as just looking at cases which are about similar kinds of professional misdemeanor and then looking at what happened in the end. Because there are a lot of factors at play, and just to give you some examples, there's the fact that the regulators are operating to different legislation, individual professionals have a different span of responsibility from each other, both generically and in relation to the very specific job that they have at that time. There is the fact that through the fitness to practice process, there are different provisions for representation, so for example, by lawyers or trade unions or others. Those are just a few of a long list of different variable factors that could have an impact on the outcome of a case. And what we don't have at the moment is a, is a methodology that's been specifically designed to adjust for all of those different variables. So what we hope, we're hoping to move on soon is to work with an academic to really explore all of those different variables, work out what the potential impact is, and then to hopefully in the future progress to a, uh, a full-on research study that looks at the uh, that looks to answer the question: Are the processes consistent or not? So that was my second area, and the third is where. We, as the Professional Standards Authority, have decided it's really important to pursue something and with the we're leading and we're looking for academic researchers to help us take things forward. So an example of this that we're looking at at the moment is that listeners may know that a few years ago we developed a method for generating advice on the right kind of regulation for particular groups and we called that method Right Touch Assurance. Now in the past, as we all know there are many examples of the decision about um, which professional groups or which occupations become regulated is a political one, or it's determined by other factors such as how well organized the profession is or how skillful they are at lobbying um, and in pursuit perhaps of the perceived prestige of being statutorily regulated. Now as the authority we can only advise when we are asked on what we think the right form of regulation is. And that could be statutory regulation, that could be um, a register that's accredited, or it could be some other system, so an employer-led set of standards, for example. But what we're trying to do is to develop that model that we call Right Such Assurance, so that what it generates is advice that's been 
based on an assessment of risk, because this is where we think the, the um, right form of regulation should arise from. It's what is the best way to manage the risks that arise from the, from the practice of a particular profession. So, to come back to your question, we're taking our methodology forward a step, and what we're currently doing is that we're out to tender for an academic or a group to work with us specifically to create a risk calculator, which can, which can look at the, all of the um, areas of risk that a particular group's work creates and can take that, crunch it, and produce advice at the end as to what we think the best form of regulation is. Well, that's, uh, that's very interesting and, and quite an undertaking, especially when you consider going across multiple different disciplines. Um, I know, you know, with other regulatory bodies, sometimes it's just challenging to um, have a historical recall of, of, you know, what kind of discipline happened on a particular case 15 years ago in order to stay consistent with, uh, you know, the board's policies uh, moving forward. So uh, that's quite an undertaking. I certainly look forward to hearing more about that. Well, you, you've talked about research, which is quite technical and focused on regulators. Do you also do research directly uh, with the public itself? We do, and there's one, in one piece of work that we're in at the early stages of at the moment, which I was very keen to talk about. Um, and what we're hoping to do, which doesn't sound maybe all that public-focused, is about it's about advancing regulatory theory. And in this case, it's about how patients and the public keep themselves safe when they're going through a health or care process. Put like that, that sounds quite technical, but as I'll try and explain, we think this is going to be something that's really impactful for patient safety in the future. So people may be familiar with the fact that in 2015 we reissued um, Right Touch Regulation, which is one of our sort of um, keynote publications about how we think about regulation. And that in there, we talked about how different agents of patient safety work together and interact to keep people safe. And those different agents include regulators, employers, health and care professionals, the law, and of course, patients and public themselves. And in different situations, we talk about how those different parties each play their own different part in ensuring that what happens is safe. Now, if we think, for example, if someone was going to a professional who they had chosen to see themselves, such as a private osteopath or a chiropractor, maybe for something that was relatively minor, where they, the patient, were relatively in control, they were very involved in, their de in decisions about what happened, in that kind of situation that you might expect it would be playing a larger role in keeping themselves safe, more safe than somebody having an emergency process in hospital. But we've never really taken that idea any further about what the patient's role is and what it really means to keep yourself safe or what it might be reasonable to expect patients to do. Now, last year, I was lucky enough to work with Samantha Peters, who, until quite recently at the time, had been the chief executive of the UK General Optical Council. And we worked together on a chapter for a book that was being published by Routledge on trust in different settings. And we contributed a chapter on trust in health and care. Now, out of that piece of work came the idea of constructive distrust. And we talked about this as being an attitude on the part of the patient where the patient inquires, not in a hostile and aggressive way, 
but um, an attitude where the patient is still uh, encouraged and able and comfortable to ask questions about what's happening, and also to challenge things or to raise their concerns where things don't look right. So it's a frame of mind where the patient would be pretty beady-eyed in looking after their own interests, but not one where they would be obstructive or uncooperative, which would inevitably lead to problems in delivering care to them. Now, having developed this idea a bit, back at the authority, we started thinking about whether constructive distrust might be a way in to thinking a bit more about what we really meant about patients playing a part in keeping themselves safe. And this is going to be one of our next research projects. We're at the moment going out to tender to find a company who can work with us to run some public focus groups and do some structured interviews with members of the public to find out what they think about this idea of being constructively distrustful. Would they find that an empowering idea or is it possible that by promoting an idea like constructive distrust, we might actually undermine people's confidence in the care that they're receiving? Now, of course, the answer to that question will be different for different people, but what we're hoping is that out of a discussion, we'd understand more about what it is that makes people feel comfortable about speaking up when something doesn't look right, and what it, what it is that makes people feel inhibited. So why do people speak up? Why don't people speak up? when they maybe think, I don't know why this is happening to me, I can see that this is happening to me but it doesn't feel right, or I think a mistake is about to be made of some kind. Well, you might ask again, why are we getting into this so deeply? Now, it's interesting when you talk to people about this idea of constructive distrust, initially that might seem quite an alien concept, which people don't feel easy about, and they feel that it's somehow they're taking on too much responsibility for what happens. But then also, when you start talking about it a bit more, people often will tell you about situations where they or somebody close to them have seen something go wrong when they've been receiving healthcare and have or haven't done something about it. And you only need to look at a lot of cases where things have gone very badly wrong in health and care and there's almost always someone who knew. And that someone is often the patient. Now, we think with more insights into what it is that keeps people feeling that they can or can't speak out, and what would make people feel able to speak out where currently they don't, that we might be really onto something which could be very impactful in the future because it would help us to target those very specific reasons and, um, and by doing so, help us to um, mobilize patients to possibly prevent things going wrong in the future without adding or giving them an unreasonable burden, we would only be looking to do something which patients were comfortable with. Well, um, I've always been a, a big fan of, of constructive distrust. I mean, and part of that I probably has come over the 16 years that, that I've been working as an investigator with the dental board. Obviously, being involved in healthcare, um, you, you tend to question things, and certainly investigator, I see plenty of people that, that have not questioned things um, as, as they probably should have. Um, so I, I really am a fan of that. Well, I guess finishing up, I guess, how can we find out more about what you do? Well, I would suggest the first stop is our website because we publish everything, all of our completed work there. 
Um, and that's not just our policy and research reports, but it's also the work of all of the teams of the authority, including those who review the regulator's final hearing decisions, and also the, the reports that we publish about the performance of regulators in the UK and outside the UK where we've been commissioned to do so. Anyone is very welcome to email me on douglas.bilton at professionalstandards.org.uk. If anyone's interested in attending our academic conference, to be honest, it's not likely I could get you in this year because it looks like we're already full, but I'd be very happy to put you on our list to be invited to future events and to be kept informed about things that we're doing. And we're always happy to receive ideas for the future and to talk about them with anybody who'd like to talk to us. So please do get in touch. Well, I'm, I'm certainly excited and, and interested in hearing about more about how the research goes in the future. Um, but I do want to take time to, to thank you for being a part of this uh, podcast with us today. Um, you know, I think it's always wonderful to be able to hear new ideas and, 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 and have a conversation with uh, other professionals. So thank you for speaking with us today. Thank you. And uh, thank you also to those that are listening. Um, you know, we'll be back with another episode of Regulation Matters, a clear conversation very soon. Um, as I'm sure you are aware, uh, we are available on a lot of different podcasts um, through Podbean, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and TuneIn. Um, and if you've enjoyed this podcast episode, please leave a rating um, uh, or uh, in the comments of the app. You know, your reviews help us improve our ranking and make it easier for new listeners to actually find us. Um, you can find out more information um, about Douglas and information about our organization, clearhq.org. So that's www.clearhq.org um, for additional resources and a calendar of upcoming events um, and training programs that we have coming. Thank you uh, also to our staff, uh, specifically uh, Stephanie Thompson. She's our content coordinator and editor um, for this program. And I'm Lyne Dempsey. I'm so happy to uh, bring this uh, podcast to you and hope to be hearing from you again soon.